Brasscast, and I am super excited because we have one of my past teachers today. Yay! Yay. <laughs> we have Dr. Stephen Arthur Allen here, um, and he's one of those people who you can talk to about pretty much anything musical, and just you know, he's a he just is a wealth of information. So, um, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure. Wealth of information. We'll see. <laughs> I remember, I remember being on, um, I remember being over there for lessons, uh, and you could pull out some detail of, of one composer's piece and be like, well, he wrote this around this time. And this, this motive is found in this other piece. And, and he must've been writing these two things at the same time and look how the interplay. And I, and I just sit there, just, just try to soak it in. <laughs> I figured out quite a long time that if you have to be a nerd, you might as well make your living doing it. <laughs> good philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that is a good philosophy. Are you retired, Stephen? Are you still working? No, no, I may look like I am, but uh, no, I'm still, I am still gainfully employed because unlike France, um, you can't retire either 62 or 64 in this country, right? Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> you got way, way, way many more working years in you. Oh dear, what a laugh. Tony, what was that? So what, what are you currently doing now? So I'm still professoring at Ryder and I'm really enjoying it actually. I love, I love the teaching. Um, as Amy said, it's, I, I, I guess it's one of my gifts. So um, it's really wonderful to be able to exercise it, you know, uh, either online or in the classroom, you know, so I'm still very much enjoying that. COVID changed everything in that it slowed life right down. And I realized that I'm more of an introvert than I ever knew. I'm quite happy at home uh, with books and my wife and telly and a good piece of exercise every morning. Nice walk around the block, 7,000 steps, get that in. You don't even have to think about exercise for the rest of the day, you know, yeah. except, except lifting your mug of coffee. I mean, you know, <laughs> lose a couple of micro ounces a day doing that but other than that no it's good it's all good so so little known little known fact um we're obviously going to focus on on steve's uh brass band stuff but steve teaches a do you still teach the the classes on on pop history and stuff i do i do yeah he's he's an expert on on like radiohead and what else? What other classes do you teach? Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Beatles, Springsteen. <laughs> pop rock history. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting because I had almost zero interest in any of that before I moved to the States. But moving to the States made me suddenly realise there was this incredible legacy in England of pop rock acts. And so all of a sudden, it was like an being a, a classical nerd um, who made his living being a classical nerd. I figured, well, let's make my living being a popular music nerd. So it, it became a sort of like an undiscovered country. And I'm still really enjoying it, actually, discovering all kinds of groups and singers and bands. It's wonderful. Yeah, I was kind of jealous when you were teaching, um, I think it was the movie music. It's like philosophy yeah. and, and like film music. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, the Stanley Kubrick class. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a really great. Somebody should put a brass band program together of Stanley Kubrick theme music from his different <laughs> movies. That'd be a great one. 
<laughs> just to sort of interconnect it with the main channel of discussion here, you know. <laughs> wow, yeah, for sure. That that's a uh, Clockwork Orange. That was yeah, that movie. Yeah, there's the one of Space Odyssey. Yeah, um, was the Vietnam but, one? Oh yeah, a Full Metal Jacket. Full Metal, yeah. Boy, and that would that Barry would be as well, Barry Lyndon, which is yeah, is probably his least well-known film. It's a stupendous movie, you know. Yeah, that would that would be an odd concert. <laughs> <laughs> he was one of the first to use classical music. He upset Hollywood big time by using yeah. classical music in two thousand and one, and thereafter, and because that means that a lot of the music in his films is very well known by a lot of people. So you right. know, it could make quite a good quite quite a good concert. <laughs> yeah, well, well, he definitely, um, you know, reworked or put a new meaning to the the also Sprague Southeaster opening fanfare. He did absolutely. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I often tell the my, my, my students actually, let's let's have a listen to the rest of it, you know, because there's, <laughs> there's a whole twenty five minutes, forty more, more minutes of it. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was there? There was a piece that we played at Rutgers uh, when the before the the brass band was was uh discontinued and now it's back um but that it was it sounded like it was movie music and i remember you talking about it it was thea musgrave uh oh the variations for brass band yeah i thought that was a fantastic piece if you're Thank people you. who are listening like hunt down this piece because it's like super creepy cool wacky stuff yeah that's, that's right what, yeah. what piece is it it's called Variations for Brass Band by Thea Musgrave. It sounds like it's like a like a horror movie soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the first real modernist pieces for Brass Band in many ways. You know, wow. one of the groundbreakers. But yeah, it's a great piece. There's a famous story, just for those that are interested in Brass Band history. In, the, in 1967, Jeffrey Brand was called in to conduct Black Dyke Mills in the radio broadcast. I don't know whether the previous conductor had left or some such, but anyway, that was on the programme, along with William Alwyn's overture and um, another piece. And he conducted the band and they really liked him. And they invited him to be their conductor and they ended up winning the Nationals that year on Journey into Freedom. And then there was a whole like tremendous period of great success with him conducting. So for a lot of people that know about Jeffrey Brandy's background, they might be surprised to know that that piece was actually one of the deal breakers that got him to conduct Black Dyke back in the 60s. Huh, that's see, I'm full of this. I'm full of this kind of garbage. <laughs> see, what I, see what I'm talking about? This is like, this is what my lessons were like. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking about... The, you know, the British brass band history. Could you talk to us about, you know, how you got your start was in brass bands? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you the real brief version. I was very badly, chronically asthmatic, asthma, you know, the, the chest breathing uh, illness um, in the 60s. And there were very few cures even back then. So they told me to blow something. So the only thing that was left in the music cupboard was a euphonium. So I picked it up, played a scale which was really important for me because I just needed to have some success within the first 10 seconds, like most kids of that age, right? <laughs> and uh, I, I took that up. I was pr pretty good at it and um, ended up joining one of the local ad adult brass bands in Oxted, Surrey, band that's got history that goes back a long, long way. Um, and there were some terrific players in that band, Linda Nicholson, actually, one of the great cornet players with the National Youth Brass Band, uh, went on to do a lot of conducting, played with Black Dyke herself as principal cornet. I think the first female, first woman uh, 
maybe even cornet player in that band, let alone principal cornet. That was during the James Watson era. Um, and her sister Brenda and just that that was a really great time and then I went to one of the very few colleges in the country that had a brass band course and ended up going to the school of music because they wanted a baritone player they were short of a baritone player and they were a very good band they came third to Black Dyke in 1979 from draw number one. Oh. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. I think nice. Corey, Corey was second I think Black Dyke won Corey second and then uh, yeah Birmingham School of Music Brass Band. <laughs> it was a pretty hot group. <laughs> there were some great players in that band, Andy Colshaw, Andy Forbert, lots of lots of people that went on to great brass careers, you know. Um, and my writing sort of started around that time too, which is what I mainly do now, actually. That since COVID, especially, that's become right, the main sort of pillar of, of my working life, you know. So bra I owe a lot to brass bands and I've always loved them. It's always been socially as much as anything else. I mean, I could tell you some stories from those years that make your hair fall out. I mean, <laughs> there were some, there was some as, as everywhere, there's some real characters in the brass band world, you know. So that's my thumbnail version. <laughs> Speaking of writing, um, I have I have your uh, your publication on, on Resurgum over on my desk in the corner over there. Do you want to, can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's, it's fantastic work. Oh, the, the Eric Ball one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was I was invited. It's a funny story. This I wrote an article on Benjamin Britten. I think it was his violin concerto for the Musical Times, which is a notoriously difficult journal. It's about 150 years old. It's very venerable, and you know it's almost impossible to get. They have like um, multiple readers, you know, approve you before you can get published. And the editor actually contacted me afterwards and said, "I want you to do a series on brass band." I thought that was a yanking my chain. I thought, oh yeah, someone's having a real laugh here because I mean that kind of thing just doesn't normally happen. So sure enough, I went on to produce a number of articles for the, the Musical Times, Holstelgar, Garvon Williams, uh, mainly golden era composers. And um, then I wanted to bring in a brass band composer, one of the insiders, as it were, you know, because um, a lot of the readers of that journal would recognise Holston Vaughan Williams, but they wouldn't recognise Eric Ball. So I did those other articles first to, to give us a, a lead in. And so Eric's Resurgum, yeah, that was a wonderful uh, thing to be able to write about. And it ended up being, I think it was either two or three parts in the end. I think it's three, yeah. Yeah, it was. It ended up being like a multi-part thing, <laughs> which was great because it enabled me to dabble in a lot of Eric's um, other music as well you know but uh yeah one of the neat little things that i dug up about that was that during the blitz during the second world war eric was in london and he'd gone to st paul's cathedral and um he saw the souls of the righteous in the hands of god written somewhere i think it might even have been on a gravestone outside outside the uh, the, the cathedral there and that kind of lodged in his brain it's not in the bible interestingly enough it's in the apocrypha which is interesting in and of itself but uh, that sort of stuck in his mind. And then there's a very, very elaborate relationship with a, a, a woman that he fell in love with, um, ended up, the, the, the woman ended up actually having, um, oh, what was it, a, a, a disease that you could have it for a long time and not die, but it was really clear to everybody that she was going to die. So he ended up marrying her sister. He was really encouraged to marry her sister and he had a happy marriage with his sister. But there was a part of him that was probably still in love with the departed sister, you know, and, and so that the resurgum is really in many ways, I think, 
it's a, it's a very complicated work because it is a Christian work. Let me point that out, right? Nothing that I say in the article really is subversive in the sense that it doesn't take away the reading of it as a Christian piece, but it does delve into these areas of complexity. You know, most great artists are complex people, right? You know, there's a lot going on there, which often comes out in the art, some of which they're not even aware of, which is what makes it really, really interesting. So some of those stormy moments in Resurgum where it's very melancholy, you know, da, 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 dee, da, da, that cornet solo, which Eric mm -hmm. said, that's um, death took my love away. He used to instruct the cornet players verbally on that. And you think, well, who was it that death took away? Well, it was this, this young lady who had been in love with, um, you know, and then you get the, the hellish sort of bit in the middle there where the trombones are blasting out Day of Judgment, you know, think, what on yeah. earth is going on here? But then at the end, you get that magical transformation, which it never fails, especially if people know the background. So it never, even Eric Ball himself, apparently the, Harry Mortimer, who was conducting the fairy band at the time, there's an optional top D, da-da-da-da, da in the cornet. Yeah. And, he had, and he had all the cornets play the top D, so that he could just hold it on forever, you know. And apparently everybody that was in the room that day realised that Fairy had won it. And Eric Ball apparently was sitting in the front row, just heaving, crying, but but shoulders like really, really weeping, you know. Aww. And uh, I think his band came sixth that day. And the adjudicator's comments were, we, we, we believe the conductor of this band has failed to understand the composer's wishes. On numbers for his band, and he was yeah. a composer. Yeah, which is a st which is a nail in the coffin of adjudication, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a case exhibit A, right, against adjudication. You know, yeah, the composer that's who wrote it has no idea what's going on. Yeah, that's, a, that's a very risky comment to make. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that, that the composer is probably conducting three of the bands. You know, the, the other story that pops to mind that I really love and that hopefully the listeners will enjoy was in 1967, actually going back to Jeffrey Brown and Black Dyke, because that legendary win on, that was the first time they'd actually used low pitch instruments. You know, brass bands used to be what, they, what used to be called high pitch. And there was this transformation that happened in the 60s and it was Black Dyke's win on low pitch, the new, well, I call it low pitch, relative, not, not high pitch, right? Mm -hmm. The instruments that we all play on today uh, Black Dyke actually won that show on that piece. And the, the adjudicators were um, Eric Ball himself, because it was Journey into Freedom Eric's piece that was being played, and, and Gilbert Vinter. Uh, uh, one of the points I make is that in the in the 60s, Gilbert Vinter became the big star of the brass band world, sort of slightly eclipsing Eric himself. And in some ways, Journey into Freedom, I think, can be seen as not getting your own back at Gilbert Vinter, but sort of saying, I can do this too. It's like, okay, I may be, you know. So the fact that almost all of Journey into Freedom is not Eric himself. It's only the very last bit uh, the, where the big theme comes back at the end. Sounds like yeah. the sun comes up, right? As the bases come up, that scale, the sun comes yeah. out. Eric right. says all of the music before that is kind of fake. It's all worldly music, which is a great way for him to write sort of Gilbert Vinter-like stuff. And halfway through the Black Dyke performance, Gilbert Vinter apparently, with tears streaming down his face, leaned over and looked at Eric and said, you've really written one for the ages, you know? And yeah. I think that's such a super story. You know, one great brass band composer to another, you know. 
Yeah, for sure. What what are you talking about when you're talking about the high breath or the high sound and the low sound? Yeah, the 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 for for about 150 years, brass instruments were smaller generally than the ones that we have today, and the pitch was about it wasn't quite a a, a quantifiable thing, but it was higher. So if you listen to some of those recordings, which you can do on YouTube now, it's fantastic, right? Because you can listen to all of these performances. They all tended to be in what in what was then called high pitch. Are they so like 445 or 446 or something like such. that? Yeah, I can't okay. remember the math on it, Tony, but yeah, some such, right? Um, and then it was all brought into line with the, 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 the pitch that everybody else was using. And that was around about 1967. I think Booze's... You know, especially because boozes at that time, I mean, today we're so spoiled with instrument choices, right? But back in the 60s, it was basically Boozy and Hawks and Besson that ruled the show. So yeah. once, they, once they made the decision to change the pitch, it was then a question of all these brass bands, of course, they, they now have to spend a fortune replacing their entire... I don't know whether it'd be interesting for someone who's interested enough to go back and find out what happened here, because every brass band would essentially have had to have traded in their old instruments for the new ones, right? Well, yeah, it's yeah, but but it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that if you if you listen to those old recordings and you're like, why do those bands sound the way they do? That That's could right. be a, a reason for it that that really we don't. I never had even thought of that before. Yeah, yeah, they all used to have the old G trombones, you know, with the trigger and everything, and the yeah. little trombones used to call them pea shooters. <laughs> you know, and then everything became, of course, large bore. And, and, and the rest is history, right? And then once right. we lost the copyright, especially on the euphonium compensating, I can't remember what that was. It was like, you know, but Yamaha used to have the valve right up here. I think mm -hmm. maybe it was the same with the tubers, Tony. Was it the same with yeah. the Yamaha tubers? Yeah. Yeah, Yamaha had four upright, yeah. That's right. And then un until Boozy lost the copyright on it mm -hmm. or the patent, and then, of course, everything went down to the, the side of the horn, and you could then get all the way down legitimately to the bottom, you know. Yeah. And, and Yamaha and everybody else started. Then the euphonium tuber world opened up in terms of companies now being able to make them. You know, right. today we have this unbelievable choice, range of choice. You know, yeah, repertoire as well. I mean, back in the back in those days, it was like one cornet concerto, the Dennis Wright cornet concerto, uh, no euphonium concerto. Actually, Jeffrey Brand. <laughs> The Holovitz and also the Ernest Tomlinson Cornet Concerto, the Holovitz Euphonium. So it was only in the 70s that brass band instruments even started getting their own concertos. Something young young players coming up today just take it for granted, right? Yeah, that there are always solos to play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think somebody recently put on Facebook, um, what's everybody's favourite Euphonium Concerto from the last two years? And, and I thought, wow, look at that. It's such a... Yeah, right. <laughs> it's an incredibly expanded field now. Like there's more than one. <laughs> <laughs> Amy championed the bark, didn't you, Amy, for your doctorate? Did I I did what? The bark the bark euphonium concerto. Was it the euphonium concerto or the variants or some some such? Oh yeah, yeah. I I wrote about um about the Bach uh the Jan Bach euphonium concerto. And I actually, oh, yeah. I, I got to, uh, I emailed Jan about it. Um, oh, and I got, I got, he just, he was fantastic. He emailed me back and he gave me charts 
And he gave me like, he gave me all the information I would, I would ever need to write about. He, he gave me some of the, he, some of the analysis of his own concerto. I was like, yes, I will take this. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, He was a great help. We talked a whole bunch. um, And I remember reading other, uh, other major papers on his euphonium concerto and uh, they totally disagreed um, with what Jan was telling me about his own piece. Um, they were, they were trying to figure out what was going on with his first movement. And I remember Jan sent me a, like this chart and it was the first move, the first theme chopped up into sections and the second theme chopped up into sections. And he saw it totally as two different themes, just all the pieces. And so unless unless he told you that that was what was going on, I, I doubt you would be able to see, you know, what he was thinking when he was, figure out what he was thinking when he was writing it. Um, that's, a great, that's a great thing about talking to composers who are still alive, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm grateful I have that. Now that he's gone, I, I'd like to get that published, but I had I just have so many, so many things I want to do and and so little time. So at some point, especially that first movement and, and the last movement, um, the middle movement is, is kind of boring theoretically and like interesting wise because it's just Mexican and Spanish music back and forth. The last yeah. movement was really interesting because it was like a, it was in memory of his friend um, and he had like, um, he had his Bach uh, chorale because there's always something by, there's always something Bach well, in Jan Bach. Bach. There, there mm-hmm. needs to be. Yeah. And then he, he had like the euphonium became like a pastor and it became like a, like a, like a religious service yeah, there you near go. the end. So it was really was cool. One, yeah. Was this the, the concerto that was written for orchestra? Yeah, it has an orchestral, it has orchestral. There's, I mean, euphonium and orchestra, there's like, there's like 60 euphonium and orchestra pieces. Uh, we just yeah, but, back, but when this was written, there wasn't. <laughs> There was there were very few. Yeah, and I think yeah. I I think yeah. I remember that that Neil Corwell did it with the North Carolina Symphony way 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 back in the early years of it, like one of the earlier performances of it. Yeah, that was one of the early ones, right back with all of it. Is there a recording yeah. of that? I don't have a. I, I mean, uh, Jan only had the the um, Brian Bowman recording. Um, and there was another one that went that was too slow and he like artificially sped it up so it sounded like nanny goat little time <laughs> so, <laughs> so somebody needs to record year, that yeah. somebody needs to record that piece uh somebody needs to play it because it is a fantastic piece and i love it and if anyone wants to supply a large ensemble for me i will i will play it because <laughs> you, like you just you just need an orchestra to back you up right well, there's, right. there's orchestral, I think there's wind ensemble accompaniment, because uh, I think Brian Bowman did it with wind ensemble. So I, so there's, you know, just, just supply, a, someone out there supply me with a large ensemble and we'll, we'll make it happen. Yeah. I had an interesting experience when I was teaching you, Amy, because again, it's funny how Jeffrey Brand, who, by the way, just recently died um, in, in his mm-hmm. 90s. So maybe by accident, by default, I hadn't planned this, obviously, coming into it. But here's Jeffrey again. I bumped into him at the British Open and he asked me to do the premiere of the Gareth Wood 
you find in concerto, but in its in its fourth movement version, David Childs, who it was written for, had premiered the three three movement version. But there is actually this uh, fourth movement, which is rather wonderful, a, kind of a waltz that sounds like a Danny Elfman, uh, like a Danny Elfman track out of one of his oh. movies. And uh, that's another great euphonium concerto that deserves a bit more attention than it's had, you know. So I'm putting in a little plug there for the Gareth Wood. You know. <laughs> no, Anyone out there, play that one too. We're just, yeah, <laughs> we're just this is becoming a euphonium concerto plugging podcast. It is, it is. <laughs> what about you, Tony? Do, have you got any favorite tuba concertos or any particular? Oh, I, don't, I don't play any euphonium concertos. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 you do tuba, right? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a tuba player. Um, yeah, tuba, yeah, tuba yeah, it's, it's fun. Yeah, with like, like the, I, I've always had a special thing for the Von Williams tuba concerto because it was like uh, the the main, you know, the main concerto written for the tuba by a major composer. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I've I've actually, um, you know, for many years, I I you know never really liked the John Williams concerto until recently. You, sometimes you just kind of got to hear it in the right context and i finally yeah, got to hear it live if you play if you hear it with piano it does not work yeah they you go. have to hear it with the orchestration because you know of course john williams is a master orchestrator and it's the same thing with the bruce broughton sonata as well you listen to it with piano and it just doesn't some, you're just like wow this is just missing something and then you hear it with orchestra either wind ensemble or orchestra better with orchestra because Broughton and John Williams both know how to get the colors, all the colors, and the music is written like that. And you can actually hear the soundtrack type of composer that they are. Yeah, hear like yeah. that. So, so it, it, yeah. a lot of the tuba music it depends on um, on the context in which you hear it as to whether or not it really comes off the cross. The best performance I ever heard at a Von Williams tuba concerto was by a bass trombonist. Is that funny? It, <laughs> it works better as a oh, bass trombonist. Oh, yeah, yeah, Matt Guilford with the National Symphony and he played it. It was brilliant. I was like, wow, this piece was written for bass trombone. But the best performance I ever heard of the Strauss First Horn Concerto was with a tuba. <laughs> That's, That's hilarious. It's funny that you're talking about Vaughan Williams because um, with COVID, I, I, I phoned up a bunch of friends around the world and uh, I've got a friend in Lancaster who uh, we've made a couple of small videos with, with the Lancaster Brass Band. And we worked on the variations for brass band, knowing little knowing that we'd bitten off something bigger than we could chew because it was a, that was a big project. We got everybody basically to record their parts. Some people online. Might, no, a lot of people might think that right. A lot of people I think look at the video and think that it was a Zoom. We're unconducting and everybody's just playing. No, no, no. no. Everybody was recording their own parts, sent them over. George would mix them, and we'd be we'd be doing video conferences like this where we'd be listening to bar after bar, trying to get everything lined up and, you know, just, just so. But uh, Vaughan Williams' music, you know, it, it never gets old. Yeah. I actually, the first time I ever heard the Vaughan Williams, the, the variation for brass band, it was actually on an Eastman wind ensemble recording called the Variations for Wind Band. Yeah, there you go. And and, and Don Hunsberg, I think Don Hunsberg did the it was, transcription it was for Don that. Hunsberg, yeah. And I was like, wow, what a great piece. And and I had no idea because I hadn't been introduced to brass bands in my life at that point. Um, yeah. And then I, you know, I was like, wow, I heard the brass band version. I was like, wow, somebody stole this wind band piece and made a brass band piece out of it. Piece. And it turns out it's the other way around. And I I, I did that with the uh, Triangle Youth Brass Band at NABA in 2010. Yeah. Um, 
you know, that was, you know, one of our, one of our pieces that we, that we, we ripped out and what a great piece. It was a lot of fun to play that one. It's a great piece. It's a super piece. Yeah. There's a bit of a controversy about the, um, the interpreta interpretation aspect of it, because I've done a couple of versions of it before, including one at NABBA, um, they're actually on YouTube, but I've never been really happy about the speeds, even in a lot yeah. of the recordings. Something to, you know what it is? It's something to do with the fact that it's Vaughan Williams uses a slightly more, if you like, Brahmsian type of scoring. It's slightly denser. Yeah. The same thing with Henry V and also with the Prelude on Three Welsh Hymn Tunes. And what I began to realize, especially as I listen more and more to the symphonies and listen to some of the re more recent interpretations, that if you don't take the tempo at the right speed, that 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 orchestration can sound um, what's the right word for it stodgy. Yeah, you know, it, it can thick, sound yeah yeah it can sound like it's being driven it, it driven uncomfortably a little bit like if you will a person who's more introverted um, being forced to be someone that they're not you know being asked yeah. to to be something they're not so for me it was it was a real journey and I figured out that by using the ninth variation in particular which is so beautiful don't know whether you guys can remember that but the adagio movement which I think is one yeah. of the most beautiful pieces of music let alone brass band music yeah. And, yeah, and, sure. and then, as it were, extrapolate out from there. Think of that as the heart of the piece, and then extrapolate out. It almost gives you then the, the tempo, and not just the tempo, but the tempo and the feel that's needed, you know, which for me was a revelation. For a lot of people hearing it for the first time that know a lot of the old recordings, it'll be a real shock. It'll yeah. take, it'll, it'll, a bit like you with a John Williams. It'll take, it'll take several listens to acclimatise but I think once acclimatized, it's 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 gosh, it's wonderful. This you know what it is? There's so much poetry in it. That's that's I guess the point I want to make. There's so much poetry in it. See, he's been always the big problem for me. Whenever that's been done in a concert with Henry V, even recently at one of the Festival of Brasses, right? Everybody comes away guiltily saying Henry V was better. You know, it's like they salute the flag with the variations. It's like, yes, it's a great piece. Salute, salute, salute. But actually, <laughs> the, heart is with, the heart is with Henry V. But I really believe that if you get to the heart of the variations and get that poetry speaking, and sometimes that poetry is even note for note, not even phrase for phrase, right? Yeah. Henry V, beautiful piece that it is. I'm a huge fan, right? But all of a sudden, it's like, uh oh, no, no, no. We're going to make way here for the masterpiece, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with 100%. I think that you know, Henry V is the fun piece to play. Yeah. Uh, but but the great piece, the masterwork, is is the variations for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And probably a great test of any interpretation is have people sit down and listen to Henry V and then that interpretation and see if Henry V comes out the winner or not. Because done, done, done right, it shouldn't. But Henry V has got all of the right tactics to be the most popular piece. You know, yeah, <laughs> I'm being a bit. <laughs> true, I think it's of, you know of, of the variations. Yeah, for sure. You've you've also written uh, about Holst, haven't you? Yeah, both of them, Imogen and Gustav, actually, because there's a wonderful piece by Imogen uh, called "The Unfortunate Traveler." Unfortunate Traveler. You want to talk about the, that because that's, that's going to be. The third Coming up in piece next year. Oh, that's a fascinating piece. I mean, she loved Imogen was she could be, I mean, her first book on Gustav is almost almost wickedly critical. 
I mean, she could be really almost venomous, actually, in a criticism of her dad's work. Um, but if you listen to The Unfortunate Traveller, you can tell that it's very, she'd been very knocked, she, as all of us, right? She'd been really knocked, knocked to the side by the Moorside Suite. I mean, when Moorside Suite came out, there was nothing like that had been heard like it. Even that first movement scherzo and the second movement, they're so chamber-like, they're so filigree and light and so unlike. Yeah. You know, and Holst's imagination, his music, I'm, I mean, I'm still, even as I go on through my, you know, my more mature years, my, my depth of appreciation, appreciation and respect of Holst and my, my desire to know more of his music only increases. And she obviously heard it and she was a student at the Royal College of Music and Vaughan Williams was not actually her teacher. I think Herbert Howells was, was actually her teacher, but yeah. she wrote the brass band piece as her final, for her finals. Yeah. And I love Imogen for this because all of the people at the Royal College said, we can't possibly have a brass band. We can't do that. We can't have brass bands at the Royal College of Music. So so she I love Imogen because she stuck to her guns, but it's like if you don't if you don't do something else, you're gonna fail. So what she did is she did a string orchestra version of it. And the string orchestra version she conducted was the premiere of the piece. It wasn't even premiered by, by, by the you know by the brass band. Isn't that incredible, right? Yeah. And, and then in 1933, her dad, one year before he died, her dad had this very close relationship with a fellow who was involved in a charity who wanted Gustav to put on a concert and he went with a brass band and Carlisle St. Stevens was the big, the big band of that day. The Corey band of that era was Carlisle St. Stevens. And so they were, they were the ones to do it. And um, Gustav said to Imogen, what about that brass band piece you wrote all those years ago? And she said, no, it's, it's long, you know, it's been three years now and I've moved on to other things. He said, no, no, no. I think she was a bit kind of like fed up with how it had been treated, not the piece itself, but how she'd been treated over the piece. So, yeah. so to Gustav's credit, he persuaded Imogen to rescue the piece. There were several times later on where she tried to destroy it, actually. To, to, she asked someone to destroy it for her, actually. But, you know, the story of the thing itself is incredible. I mean, the unfortunate traveller is the fortunate traveller and it's come down to us today intact, right? So yeah. Gustav and Imogen, love to have been at this concert, 1933, he conducted Moorside Suite, she conducted the unfortunate traveller. That was, the, I think, the premiere of the Brass Man version, 1933. And somebody had done an arrangement of another piece by Holst. What a great concert that would have been, right? Yeah, really. And there is a really interesting thing. Number one, although you could hear things in the Imogen piece where you could say, oh, that's obviously a connection with Moorside Suite, there's not in any sense, way, shape, nor form any impression that she's writing under the shadow of her father. It's a completely independent piece. And the way it expresses itself, even if it uses a couple of motives from the Moorside Suite or related to it, the way she expresses herself is emotionally so different because Imogen was very full of energy. She was a dancer and she danced more than she walked. She was just a, right. a yeah. dancing person. <laughs> and that really comes out in the piece. So the other slightly interesting thing is it's in four movements. And originally the Moorside Suite was going to be. Originally, the first movement of the Moorside, as we know it, was the third movement. And it was a scherzo and it was slower. It right. was going to be... Not how we know it today. But Gustav banished what was going to be the original first movement, moved that movement to the front, sped it up. 
and that's now the three the three movement version that we know. Interesting thing is Imogen kept the four movement form. I think even with a short introduction. So there's all kinds of very very interesting connections, sibling yeah. and you, between. Yeah, go for it, Tom. Yeah, and you can definitely tell that she studied the orchestrations of her father's, you know, yeah. brass band work because the, yeah. the orchestration is very similar. Yeah, it is. I mean, Gustav is always more cut to the bone in all of his music. He's very rarely warm. Uh, he was probably, I think, a bit of a cold fish in some ways as a person, although, you know, only for the most part, right? Whereas Imogen was this effulgent, very, very, very generous uh, giving person, you know. So, uh, so I think, as you said, to give them both credit, right, because we all know how difficult it is for an orchestral person to learn brass band scoring. It's so tricky. But but yeah. both Gustav and Imogen both scored their own pieces. And as I think you're beginning to realize, Tony, because you've worked with the piece, right? You can be conducting it. Well, uh, the Imogen? Or yeah. No, no, no. We just we just looked it over as we were selecting it for the for the competition. But we haven't so you, we haven't played it. I've done more heard, side suites. Yeah, yeah. Have, have you heard the Imogen? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, there was a performance at, at Royal Nerth, Royal Nerth, uh, the the what was the the brass festival? Wasn't there a performance of the brass festival this year, last year? Yeah, yeah. Did somebody yeah, did it. Grimthorpe did it or something. Brighouse, yeah. And uh, and you know, there's another recording of it out there as well that that we listen to a lot. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. Trying to remember what it was, but I but mean, I mean, I it's 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 a very delightful piece. I think everyone's gonna love playing it. Oh, it's um, great. You know, it's it's. It's a piece of brass band history that needs to be brought out, you know, it for, really does. You know for the fact, yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, Imogen Holt, whose father was Gustav Holt, is one of the greatest composers of all time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the yeah. first first female to write a brass band piece that, and, and to conduct a brass band, um, you know, that at least that most people know about, yeah. so it's, it's historically significant, and, and it's such a delightful piece, it's, it is a no-brainer, really, to pick. I mean, one of the great things, I think, since the Me Too movement and all of the, um, quite rightly, you know, the rebalancing of many things, right? There's been a, a focus on this kind of music. So Imogen's piece is now, oh, well, how, how could we possibly have missed this, right? Thea Musgrave's Variations, which has always been around. But again, I think people are beginning to realize, wow, this is, this is really, there's a piece by Phyllis Tate called Illustrations, which is Jeffrey Brand again championed that he, he he recorded it with with Brickhouse on the radio and Black Dyke um he was a big champion of women of women composers actually Jeffrey then there's three pieces by um Helen Perkin uh what mm -hmm. a carnival sovereign heritage carnival yeah you know um and then I found this piece by this Irish uh, composer, Joan Trimble. I don't, I doubt you guys have even heard of her. I hadn't before I found this. <laughs> she, she and her sister were a world traveling piano duet. They played uh, duets, you know, for two pianos and that was their act. But she was also a composer and she wrote this piece called um, Island, Island Till the End of Time. I think it was in 1940. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the Irish uh, pronunciation of it. But um, I've never heard it. I don't have a score of it. Uh, and I put it in, I, I mean, I, I put it recently in this list of brass band pieces that are essential. So it's a wonderful thing that gradually, I think these, these female composers who have written for brass band, who should all along have been accepted 
just as any other composer, are finally beginning to come out and be shown and heard, which I think is fabulous. You know, it's incredible no. for me to think. Incredible for me to think there's no commercial recording of the Phyllis Tate. There's no uh, commercial recording of two of the um, Helen Perkin pieces. There's no commercial recording. I don't think, unless Corey did one years ago of the unfortunate traveler maybe that was done a few years ago but it's incredible for me to think that this music just is unknown for the most part you know yeah. if, we, if we go back even even further i just read an article um about how some of uh some of box writings might have been his what is a second wife um might have contributed some stuff that was published under his name and of course we know that a few of Mozart's pieces that will a, a few of the pieces that were that were published as as being by Mozart were actually by his sister and we're finding that you know these women who were discouraged um yeah, from yeah, composing yeah mm -hmm. and they they found they found a way <laughs> but yeah, they were just was, they're just erased it was the same with Marla's uh Marla's wife Alma too she yeah. was a composer and she used to store hers away in a, a wall. There was a hole in the wall where she would hide it so that he wouldn't discover it. And, you know, who knows what? Scary, scary <laughs> things. But yeah, Bach and Mendelssohn, same thing with Fanny, right? His sister's yeah. remote art, like you said, amazing. Yeah, and this is all beginning to now be, get, you know, become known. Yeah, imagine the amount of, of work that has been depressed wow you know over the years that that could have been could have been here for us yeah now. yeah yeah no it's really true it's really true it's funny there's even some old brass band pieces a piece called blackfriars by edric cundall it's actually one of edward grigson's favorite pieces yeah uh, but um there was a particular person who was very powerful in the brass band world at that time and if you got on the wrong side of him, it was bad news. And somehow another Edric Cundler managed to do that. So Blackfriars was kind of blacklisted, you know. Yeah. That, that's a piece. It's a great piece. And bands should be recording it. I don't think it's been recorded for 20, 30 years. Yeah. But, it, but that, was, that was like a, a major test piece in, what, in the 30s? Yeah. Like, what, yeah. Didn't Foden's, Foden's like make their... You know, one of those, big yeah, mark one with of those that. Big yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the it was one of the biggies back in the day, but they they kind of vanish unless you advocate for it, right? It's even like yeah. on the show, right? Even the fact that Amy's been talking about the Barky Phony music, a lot of people who might have heard her speaking about that go, Oh, let, let me go get that now, right? <laughs> or the Holovich. Ah. The very fact that we're talking about it causes people, and I've got this theory that it doesn't matter how brilliant you are. Unless you advocate for something, um, it's going to disappear. Even if it's brilliant and wonderful. Look at Barks and Matthew Passion. Completely disappeared until it was discovered in the library uh, by Mendelssohn. Yeah. And everybody thought this was like Telemann. Uh, uh, Bark was like Telemann. You think, okay, you know, it's incredible stuff. Yeah, well, if only the uh, New World Broadcast had that kind of influence. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> our 24 listeners somebody's going to play the jan bach now <laughs> these, 
These are the early days though, Tony, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I remember the days when the European Brass Band Championship used to be two, two European Brass Bands coming to the Albert Hall to be beaten by Black Dyke. Now, <laughs> now, the European, now the European Brass Band Championship is all over the world, you know, and it, the Europeans, it's if true. the Brits win it, it's like a good year, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it pretty, pretty amazing. You, you got to start somewhere, right? Today, right? Yeah. It's like 60 yeah. brass bands in Japan. Who would have believed that at one time? So, yeah. you know, hope for the brass podcast yet. <laughs> speaking of uh, yeah. speaking of Japan, uh, the, the next International Women's Brass Conference is officially in Japan. Yay! I got my my questionnaire to see if I was interested, if I was asked if I would play in Athena. And I was like, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Get them them playing this um, this music, Amy. Advocate for these these pieces. We just got a great big list here of all all these pieces that that you you guys should look at for this. Yeah, there you go. It's great. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, Athena's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, wow. It's getting it's getting bigger and bigger, and uh, I think uh, Athena is looking at the potential for a uh, for a UK tour as well. Fantastic! So I got the the questionnaire for both of those about availability and and whether I'd want to do it. And I was like, "Wow, that was an email." <laughs> <laughs> do you want to go to the UK? Do you want to go to Japan? Check. Yes. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes, please. Count, count me in. I'm count there. me in. Exactly. And I'll, be, and I'll be playing the premiere of the brass band version of the Jan Bach concerto. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> that would be great. Um, and then and and something else that I wanted to to kind of add into this conversation that we were having, we were talking about advocating for these these great uh, pieces that were written in the past that that haven't been heard and and finding some of those female composers who who people just might not know about. Um, NABA is commissioning uh, a first section test piece uh, with Lucy Pankhurst for 2025. And I am so excited. That's great. Just wanted to mention that. wonderful. Yeah, that's great. That's that's great. Yeah, we're we're very excited about that. That's going to be a great project for us. And and we can't wait to see what Lucy comes up with for it. She... um, she mentioned that I think she was asked by um, she was asked to write a test piece for like what was it for one of the regional for regionals or something in in the UK and she she turned it down a, f- a few years ago because she just she didn't have she didn't have the right ideas she didn't know what she wanted to do she didn't kind of have her thoughts like all together on on what she wanted to do with it. And, uh, and when I spoke with her last, she was like, it's all, it's all like coming together and I have my ideas and things are, things are happening. So. Good. Good. That's kind that's of fun. Be, that's going to be great. Yeah. Start we're we're super excited for that. 2025 can't get here soon enough. Can it? Yeah. Ellen, Grime, Ellen Grime in the UK is a a, a, a a woman that we should definitely try and oh there's so many people though isn't there you know get, get to write for brass bands I mean Thomas Adairs is somebody that we should get to write you know my only consolation is that in a few years time we'll be able to say to artificial intelligence 
Uh, can you write us, please, a brass band piece in the style of Benjamin Britten? Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not far the, away. Have you guys heard the Beatles songs that AI has been developing? No. Sound like, sound like the Beatles in the mid-1960s. Oh, that's oh, going to wow. be weird. That's going to oh, yeah. be so weird. Yeah so, be able, yeah. So, yeah, so we'll be able to say um, artificial intelligence, uh, write a brass band test piece as Beethoven would have in 1820, and it will. Yeah. And it's going well, to be good. We have, we have to remember that <laughs> Stephen Hawking's big warning to the world is like, what's going to be the downfall of civilization is when, when artificial, artificial intelligence can do this stuff. <laughs> I think it's going to redraw the map in a big way, but I'm an optimist, you know, I think every every era of great breakthrough, you think of the book, you know, when, when the printing press and you think of the internet, you know, there's bad stuff in books and there's bad stuff on the internet, right, and there's going to be bad stuff with AI, and because we've all watched the horror movies, we've all seen Terminator and all of that jazz, right, so we're all primed, we're all primed to sort of do the knee-jerk thing, mm -hmm. and I think that the warnings have to be heeded, right, they're obviously, I think you're right, Tony, there definitely needs to be checks and balances, but also I share Stanley Kubrick's point of view, which is the more intelligence, the better, you know, it's like, if anything, we need more, not less in this world, right? Well, right. Unfortunately, we've got too much of the less and not enough of the more. <laughs> I think I think my my thought. I heard someone say um, with this with this AI, we we're we're doing so much with art and AI. I would I would rather have the AI do the work for me so that we all have the extra time in our lives to create more work that's human created. For art, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, because I mean, obviously what AI is able to do, and I, I suspect it will be stupendous, it will never be human. Actually, talking about Stanley Kubrick, 2001 A Space Odyssey, and even AI, the movie that was yeah. made by Steven Spielberg, right? This is one of the things that gives me great confidence is Stanley was an atheist, one of my favorite atheists. I'm a Christian, but he's one of my favorite atheists, right? And he was a chess player. And if anyone would have thought, let's take the worst case scenario, if anybody would have thought that, well, okay, if, if AI becomes, you know, it doesn't breathe, it doesn't pollute, it doesn't hate, um, it doesn't wear out, uh, it doesn't pollute the planet. So why don't we just have AI be, be created and then every human being takes cyanide so that the whole earth can be run by AI beautifully with no problems. Stanley Kubrick said, no, actually that isn't, that isn't what's gonna work. Uh, the, he, he actually had a great confidence in humanity, not because he was human himself, because his kind of brain would have worked that if AI was the answer, he would have said AI is the answer, right? But yeah. it all comes down to love with Stanley's, with, with the artificial intelligence. It's like if something loves you, but it's been programmed to, could that ever be real love? In the same way you might say, we have a Beethoven brass band piece, and it really sounds like Beethoven... But it isn't. At the, in, in the final analysis, it is a kind of a con, a good one. It, but yes. A con, right? Yeah. But yeah, like I'm still trying to wrap my my head around how would he orchestrate a brass band piece when it's something that he never would have even imagined could have been possible. You know, like well, he didn't I, even I, have these instruments. Like like when Beethoven wrote, the tuba didn't even exist. That's right. You know, that's, you know, how yeah. is he going to possibly write or orchestrate for an instrument that didn't even exist when he was alive? Yeah, so that's, that's right. you know, 
you know, so it's yeah, like, AI, it, it would be, it would be a great con. You're exactly right. It would be a con. I mean, AI, AI will take care of that. I mean, Paul McCartney right now is listening to himself singing in Beatles songs from 1964 that he never sang. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah. And in fact, the Beatles, I think actually Paul McCartney has just finished a song with John Lennon that the AI, I mean, a, a bona fide, yeah, Paul McCartney endorsed song is about yeah. to come out with the Beatles with Paul with John rather wow, wow. I think That's I think crazy. the Beethoven I think that Beethoven would be would be fantastic at orchestrating brass instruments I think that, that the heaviness of some of that the some of the heaviness of the texture I think if if we gave if if he had the full complement of modern brass instruments I think that he would, I think that he would like use that color to great effect. Uh, oh, my yeah, brain sure is, that, my brain is going, yeah. mm -hmm, thinking about it. Is, you know, Mozart, imagine what Mozart, the genius that Mozart had, what he would have done if he had that full complement of a, of a modern symphony orchestra. I, but you know? I don't think that he would have, I don't think that Mozart would have, would have used it nearly. And I think that Beethoven would be, would be one that would add in, that would they would use the heaviness and the the heft of of the the low brass especially. I could see Beethoven doing that. Here's yeah. an interesting one for you, Tony, on that because Malcolm Sargent, the British conductor, he he loved brass bands. He made an arrangement of the Fantasia by Mozart. I can't remember what it was for. It was it was for glass. It was for something like glass organ originally. But yeah. Eric Ball, when Eric Ball heard it, he said that could have been by Mozart. He said that is so good. The scoring of yeah. it, the sound of it, the weight of it, the proportion of it. That and, I, and I've just been listening to it recently again, actually, and it's a really terrific arrangement. But even working on my variations for brass band, where I could phone George and I could say, George, could you take the solo cornet part? Could you just make a slight crescendo at the very end of this note? Could you just slightly shave this little bit of articulation off the end of this? Imagine that you could say to artificial intelligence, um, okay, I want to hear Spirity by Thomas Doss, right? Uh, played by the Black Dyke Band in the 1960s, conducted by Jeffrey Brand. So, so, so I want, I want Je Jim Shepard on cornet. I want to hear John Clough on the euphonium part, Frank Berry on the trombone. And AI says, sure. And AI will just give you Spirity, played by Black Dyke Mills, conducted by Jeffrey Brand in 1960-whatever year it's been fed the recordings of so that it can hear all yeah. of those instruments that are reproduced. I think that's an astounding thing. I mean, I don't feel anything but positive about that because I think just that in itself is just so unbelievably amazing. You know what yeah. I mean? And even some of these people that died really young, you could say to artificial intelligence, well, try and imagine what they would have written five years after they died. Yeah. And it's, and it's got all the stuff inside of there. You think, wow, there's just such incredible potential, you know? Yeah. Wow. It's, a, it's a different, I know, because for our generation, it's it's a completely different type of jump, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, if you, if you watch that thing I did with the variations for brass band with all those players, you think, well, Steve, I was conducting singing to myself. There was no there was no recording playing. It's me going, duh. I could have conducted that piece from memory, right? But I couldn't without a band in front of me. When I did the right. 70s, I did it from memory because I knew it with the band. Yeah. This I had to I had to have the score because I just sang it, and then each of these players recorded their part. We layered it, textured it, right. shaped it, and all of a sudden you think to yourself, "Well, 
in theory, anyone could do this. Yeah. So, 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 Tony, what's your favorite? What's your favorite Mahler symphony, or or, or orchestral piece? Uh, well, Mahler symphony is is probably three. So let's say in, in 10 years' time, you sit down with your computer and say, okay, okay computer, I want to give you my interpretation of Mahler 3 today. Uh, yeah. You're going to record it, we're going to put it on YouTube, and you're going to say, now just, just slow that bar down, go back, just slow that bar down a bit. Can you just bring the bass, can you bring the tuber out a wee bit more here? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you're going to be able to do that. And what will happen is it will be the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Tony. Yeah. Mahler's Third Symphony. It's yeah. gonna be, you know that's going to happen. It and all of the world's is. conductors, all of the world's conductors who have depend, who relied on sometimes things other than their musical ability to get to where they got, yeah, are going to confront geniuses who don't have those abilities, but have great musical abilities who will be able to put out their alternate take. Yeah, that. I mean, it's really mind-blowing to think of it right but you know it's going to happen you know it's only a matter of time yeah that's, so that's quite true that's the only way i'm gonna that's the only way i'm gonna get to conduct a black dyke band too <laughs> that's it that's it your favorite brass band piece with the black dyke band in whatever year you want from 1982 yeah <laughs> <laughs> so do you remember in the beginning um, we're going to start to wrap up here, but do you remember in the beginning where I, where I described, uh, what lessons with Steve were like, <laughs> now, did, you now actually, every, hmm? did you get to play it all? <laughs> we played, we played, we played, but it was, but it was kind of like, you know, uh, it was it was kind of checking in on on what was going on, and then we'd we'd talk about you know this and that and how this relates to that, and I think that that was incredibly incredibly useful. Um, but I just wanted to say, that, like now everyone everyone who listens to the podcast just can can understand how I said Steve is just like a wealth of information, and you just. You just like let him let him loose and he's going to talk about fascinating things. You're going to learn new things and it's awesome. Um, you, have to forgive, you have to forgive me guys. I'm an educator. What can I say? You were, you were such a natural educator. We just, you know, every, every conversation I have with you, I feel like, like I'm going to go out and just, cause I'm just like, I I'm inspired to go read about, I, I should I should have been writing down all the different things that I was going to look up after our conversation. I'll have to listen to it again and write down, take notes. Yeah, but, we should probably we should probably do like a regular a regular series, like a nine part series with Stephen Arthur Allen. <laughs> yeah, well, it'd be great if you can if you if all you can stand it. <laughs> well, I, we we do have another. We, we do have something else planned with him in in the future, but you're just going to have to to. Trust us on that, uh, and uh, we'll 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 leave it at that. But it's it's upcoming. So thank you so much, Steve, for yeah, for you. joining us and and thank sharing you some of your your vast knowledge with us today. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Delightful to see you both. It's been a yeah, long time, Tony. Great. It's been a good amount of time. <laughs>